This Woman Over 70 podcast is sponsored by Vesta, a woman-owned kitchen and bath design firm in Chicago. Award-winning founder Colette Rodon-Hornoff and her team offer a collaborative and detail-oriented approach that turns your vision into a space you will love. Through design, measurement, and construction, you can count on Vesta to bring your dreams to reality. Visit Vesta online at vestachicago.com or call 773-252-7300. Let Vesta infuse your home with warmth and welcome. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we welcome you to Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined, our our weekly podcast. And we're excited to be in our fourth year. It's been a labor of love that now needs your support. We urge you to join the Aging Reimagined Circle, our sustaining membership fund, or make a donation so we may continue to inspire women to age with purpose, resilience, and self-care. Visit womenover70.com and join today. And today we're really excited to have with us Helen Schiller, age 75, who was raised by migrant Jewish parents and radicalized by the anti-war and civil rights movements. She was in a collective of whites who aligned with the Black Panther Party in Chicago, and the party's 10-point guide to action influenced Helen's progressive leadership as alderperson for 24 years, serving poor and oppressed communities in Chicago. She was known as the Radicals Radical. Helen's community activism included creation of the West Side Center for Justice Mm -hmm. and persistent efforts to eradicate police brutality, poverty, and racism. Helen chronicles her remarkable journey in her newly released book, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. Mm-hmm. Just came out in November of 2022. Now, in retirement, Helen is ready to move on to other ventures, including metal welding. So, <laughs> welcome, Helen. We're so happy to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, I think probably the best way to start is to have you tell us a bit about daring to struggle, daring to win, because it's such a personal account of your own life and the challenges you face to fight for social justice in Chicago. And so why did you decide to write the book and what are some highlights? So I guess um, I I really had been thinking about it from the time that I started, knew that I was not going to run for election in 2011 and um, but wasn't really ready to do it yet. And um, I began to write some stories and then had a few together and uh, was getting close to to um, making it a reality. But um, and then the pandemic hit. I, I, I the reason that I wanted to do this became um, it, I became, became more interested in writing the book actually during the 2016 primary election. I was very frustrated. Uh, I was frustrated by the failure to be able to establish any kind of unity or acknowledgement of the unity around the diversity of opinions that existed in the Democratic Party in order to be able to take the strengths of all of that into a fight with with Trump and what he represented. And I was really frustrated by it. And I had spent that winter actually on Cape Cod um, working on photos because at that point I thought I was going to do a photo book. And when I left, I said, okay, I have to start working on stories. I, I was really frustrated. And I thought that there was 
a lot of my own history, which informed how I felt and I thought might be helpful. Uh, so I started writing stories, but didn't really get serious till 19, uh, 2019 uh, with some friend with a friend who is a writer and sort of got me going um, on the big picture. And then the pandemic hit and I had plenty of time. So I really just sort of <laughs> soldiered through there at that point. Um, with a lot of help from people who went through the materials, helped me do some editing, um, and uh, and 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 everybody who I actually told a story who was included in one of the most everybody who was included in one of the stories who's still with us. Um, I sent the stories to them, asked them for their comments, and what I really got out of it, which I think is really important, is how much uh, we experience how we experience things from our own lens. Um, and that many of the things, and, and for someone like me who's so focused on what they're doing, this was kind of a light bulb moment because I'm writing this story that million, so many other people were engaged in, even those, even on so many levels, those that were closest to me may have been just a handful, but each of us had a different slice of that experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we had a different, slightly different perspective or view um, or information that we really gathered from it, which really actually uh, brought becoming aware of that really broadened my own view of, mm -hmm. of 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 my own experience, but of the world around me and how important really some of the lessons out of my experience really are useful. Um, but I, I continue to be really concerned these last few those last few weeks leading up to this election, especially with all the commercials really drove me a little batty. I know that this is actually being aired later, but um, so I'm referring to the November election, sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, 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 and so it's been, um, I'm glad I wrote it. I think it's timely. Um, and I really have done it in order to be able to basically pass on whatever perspective I've gained over time that might be helpful and useful in terms of moving, in terms of a moving forward in a direction that is forward looking mm -hmm. um, as opposed to one which is backward looking forward looking to become more inclusive as opposed to backward lo looking to which is more which is becoming just the opposite actually do you still energy. find the um black panther party's 10 point guide relevant useful? so it's well actually the the black panther party 10 point platform and program um, was written by its founders, Huey Newton and uh, Bobby Seale, when in 1966, and then reworked in 1972, which is the version that we really used. We I came to Chicago. I came to Chicago, and we were selling Black Panther papers as part of what we did. We had a home distribution network, and our focus was organizing white people to join the Black-led struggle for liberation. And the new version. Um, updated some of the old and included some of the changes in technology, the impact of technology, but it also um, broadened their scope to be black, uh, to the focus being black and other poor and oppressed people, so that it helped us in our organizing um, in order, you know, because it was inclusive and, um, and it helped us make the ties because so many points in the platform and program, health, education, housing, uh, police misconduct, all of those things are um, clearly related across the board to, to communities that are struggling. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, it was it, it, 
I didn't realize, I didn't actually, I knew it was important to us then, but when I finished writing the book and got to the end of it and realized, oh my God, you know, this is the theme all the way through. And then um, as I was going through our graphics to pick graphics, I came across the 10 point guide to action, which you referred to. And that was, that came from a speech that was given by David Du Bois, who in Mm -hmm. the mid seventies was uh, the uh, one was the editor of the Black Panther paper. And um, he was in Chicago, he gave the speech, and we actually wrote up this 10-point guide to action, which he talked about in the speech. We transcribed it and wrote it up because it was really a helpful guide for organizing. And when I reread it, it was very relevant. So I, so my first thought was I need to end the book with a 10-point uh, platform and program because it was so informative to me. And even though, uh, and I made the point that it had been updated once, and clearly this is, what, 50 years later, so... Hopefully people will acknowledge that as they look at it and try and put it into today's terms or realities. But um, but then when I looked at the the so that was a platform and program. And then I then when I found the 10 point guide to action, I'm like, oh, my God, now I can show how people can actually some helpful information to actually take action. So I ended the book with that. Those two things. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about you, your experiences, what it was like to as your book title says, dare to struggle, dare to win. What were some of the major hurdles that you confronted and, and uh, how did you, how did you keep, how did you sustain your efforts over 24 plus years? So I think that, well, first of all, the name daring to struggle, daring to win comes from a quote by Fred Hampton, which was dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't dare to struggle, you don't deserve to win. Mm-hmm. And um, that was from 1968 and the first time I heard it. And um, I think that that was always sort of a reminder to me um, that I needed to keep going, that I didn't, it really wasn't up to me. I mean, I had a choice to make, but for myself and what I believed in, honestly, I didn't have a choice. And that reminded me I had to keep going. Um, I think that uh, I, I I always, I'm, I'm, I think that what served me well is how stubborn I am. So, um, you know, in spite of oftentimes feeling, um, not feeling, uh, lacking some self-respect or or feeling I couldn't do stuff, within me was a very strong perspective that one, every anything is possible. You may not know the answer to something right now, but if there is one, you can find it. It's there somewhere. Uh, two, that... Um, the best way to, you know, creating, having a collective, having a, uh, working with a group of people, like-minded people, and really putting your all into it um, is very helpful. And it's, it's uh, since coming to Chicago, is really the environment that most of the time that I functioned in. And I think that that was really important. Um, and in a bigger sense, um, having a broader community that is in sync with the concerns that you have and engaged in organizing uh, basically a sea for you to swim in, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of the climate and the sentiment is really very critical. And it's a message that I like to give over and over again and really emphasize with anyone that's doing any kind of organizing, but also with elected officials, because you have to be willing to accept that there's somebody coming at you sometimes from your left, hopefully, it could also happen from your right, but hopefully we're talking about moving forward with ideals and changing the status quo to be more open as opposed to something else. And 
in that context, you know, there's always you 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 work towards change, you're going to meet friction. That's always the case. And um, you there needs to be a sea for you to swim in in order to be able to be effective in dealing with that friction. But you also have to be able yourself to know it's coming, to be able to withstand it and to have the fortitude to hold on to that. And whatever it takes for you to have that support personally to be able to move forward, I think is what people need to be prepared for. I think that's really important. But for me, I have been always clear about what the objective was. And the question was, what do I need to be do to be able to have the support to get it done or to be on a path to get at an answer? And, um, and, and when I've most the the most difficult part of that has been dealing with um, making myself heard and um, and not allowing myself to be intimidated from acting um, in the context of your question. And so I kind of developed a series of mantras for myself, especially when I was in the city council. So I'd be in a city council committee hearing and somebody would say to me, you know, one of the aldermen who was chairing the meeting would, you know, act in a manner that was very uh, deprecating or, you know, intended to make me defensive. And I would, I would just say to myself over and over again, um, no, no question is stupid. No question is stupid. Um, Keep your, you know, don't forget, keep your eye on the prize. Your goal is to get at the truth of the matter. So I have these mantras that would then I would just take off from there. But I think that that's <laughs> been really very helpful. Do, do you um, so so did you use becoming an older person as a way to have that sea to swim in? So I became so I ran early on in um, the late 70s for Alderman and afterwards, which is a story and I talk about in the book, but after that swore I'd never, I hated politics to begin with, swore I would never do that again. And then um, starting in mid 19, in, 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 the, in the middle of his term really, Harold Washington, who I knew in various different ways and been very involved in his first election, um, really started organizing me to run again for Alderman, raising the question, making the suggestion. Ultimately, uh, when he started, uh, in case people who are listening don't know, when he was first elected, there was um, an opposition organized against him to basically make it impossible for him to govern. And that was a coalition of 29 Aldermen versus 21 and uh, and became what became known as the Council Wars. Uh, but in so he was elected in 1983. In 19 late 1985, a federal court judge ruled that the census that had the map that had been drawn based on the 1980 census was discriminatory and called for new elections in a bunch of wards. The those elections occurred in 1986, and the consequence was that there was now a 25-25 split in the Chicago mm. City Council. Mm. Harold's message to me was, "I need you to run and be my 26th vote." ultimately I couldn't say no to that. I was ignoring him up until then, but I knew I could win. You know, I've been very involved in the community. I knew that I could win and therefore I couldn't say no. So I ran, but I did tell him that my priority after being his 26 vote, and he had always said, by the way, that if I have 26 votes, I'll have 40 votes because there's always those 15 or so people that are sitting on the fence. And then, you know, they go different ways, but it means that he'll have, there's not going to be the obstruction, just stopping him for the sake of stopping him, he'd be in a position where he could really govern. And that was true. 
So, so in addition to that, though, my priority was to prove that you could do development without displacement. And I really, and he promised me his support and the support of his housing commissioner, who was really an extraordinary woman in that regard. I mean, she was an amazing housing, had amazing housing expertise, was very creative. And I was really looking forward to us working on a proposal we had that would have we, we would have been working on it after he, but after, but in the new year, which would have been in 1988, but when Harold died, the opposition reared its head again, and they basically killed everything I was involved in, um, um, in terms of the media housing proposals. So I had to come back from that. But the point being that um, I ran in order to be his 26th vote. And, um, and so, the, so what, that was the decision. Now, once I was an alderman, I had to decide, and after Harold died, I had to decide if I was going to continue to be there. And he had always, uh, so I had to decide whether I was going to run in 1991 for re-election. And Harold had always said that core of his mission was to address institutional racism and institutional corruption. And by doing so, would create the fairest Chicago for everybody that we'd ever seen. And however, he also said continually that to really internalize that, to really make that change in a city as large as Chicago and as entrenched in its old machine history would really require, and beyond that actually, but would really require 20 years at least. So, and he was repeated that many times. He often said, I'll be your mayor for 20 years, but he was always referring back to that dynamic. And so uh, that was really a big part of, on the one a big part of me considering running, I felt I had that responsibility to carry that out. He had started it. And then uh, the political pundits started saying I couldn't win, that uh, I had won, won the first time on his coattails. And I really probably one of my most consistent characteristics is I'm really very stubborn just served me quite well. And I said, you know, you're going to tell me I can't run. I'm going to prove I can. So I, there, ultimately, I was almost there, but that that really put me over the top and therefore also cemented my 20-year commitment. Uh, it ended up being 24, but that was the story. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about you now in the recent past and, and currently. When, uh, when did you stop becoming an older person and What's so I chose trajectory not to now? run for election in 2011. Um, I then spent the next five months, I think it was, from May till end of July, uh, with my mom who went into hospice literally a couple of weeks after I left the city council. And um, I moved first. I, I moved into her apartment, and then I moved her into mine. Um, and uh, and and did that really until um, until the end of the summer. Um, and then my son asked me to help put together some um, uh, systems for his law practice. Uh, and I was really happy to do that because he had become a lawyer um, in my uh, fifth term. I, I served six terms. And um, and he very short, he spent a few years kind of learning the ropes and getting a grip on what he was doing, but he did mostly uh, criminal law. And it was a very natural for him to end up getting into civil rights and therefore into suing the city. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and he took on a lot of police misconduct cases. But since he was suing the city, I was not, uh, we kind of drew a line in the sand in terms of what we would talk about. 
So I didn't talk to him about anything he was really doing in his law firm or the specifics about any of his cases while I was alderman. But we did. But I did ask him whenever I was dealing with either I did ask his opinion about legislation that came before us that was related, not not settlements, but, you know, legislation and a lot of we do a lot of we did a lot of of what I considered really petty reactionary responses uh, to issues of crimes so that that instead of really solving the problem, just put more and more young people in the path of police in a situation that was likely to be confrontational as opposed to creating alternatives to that. And so we talked about that a lot, uh, but we never talked about what he was dealing with or any of his cases. I actually found out a lot about his cases from the woman who was the um, corporation counsel at the time because she didn't believe we weren't talking about the cases. And so when she was frustrated about something she would he, that was happening with it, it, with the um, with that with lawyers who were suing the city, or sometimes even my son, she'd come and search me out and 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 start pumping me for stuff. And I like I don't know what you're talking about. And in the course of those conversations, more often than not, I would she would tell me what my son was doing. It was the only time I knew what he was doing. <laughs> and um, and it was, but she never believed that that was actually true. But when I left city council and he said you can come work with me, it was like wow, we can really turn this around. I can finally actually really know and appreciate what you do every day. So I did that. And after several years, um, their law firm was, he, his law firm was uh, Schiller Prayer Law Firm. He and his partner uh, had were growing and they needed to have a bigger space. So I, I um, and he had kind of an idea of creating a space that also could be, um, a larger, uh, a large, programmatically, a larger community space that could have an organic legal community develop within it. So we ultimately found a building on the west side of Chicago, and I coordinated the rehab of it and got it together pretty much in his mind's eye, and then uh, and then co-managed that uh, with uh, someone else um, pretty much until the pandemic. This was the West Side Center for Justice. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> and uh, how does metal welding enter into your life? So about almost about a year and a half ago, I was visiting my brother who had just moved to a um, to a, a, a new home. And he had a really large backyard and he's telling me all the things he wants to do in his backyard. And in one corner of it, he says, I want to do a sculpture garden. And I'm like, wow, I love sculpture gardens. <laughs> I seek them out when I travel. And um, and I always wanted to do that. So I said, that's what I always wanted to do. And so uh, I, when I left his and when I came home, I immediately found a place, the first place I found um, I to do welding, to learn, to begin learning it. So I took a bunch of classes there. And then um, and then I went actually went to Mexico where my niece lives. And she had some friends there who have a welding studio and they do classes. And I took some classes there and then came back and got settled in this really cool organization on the north in Rogers Park on the north side of Chicago called uh, Chicago Arts in Chicago Industrial Arts and Design Center. And um, I think that's what it's called. 
And uh, they're great. It's a not-for-profit. They do a lot of stuff with young people, but you can take classes. They have four studios, um, carpentry and uh, carpentry, mm -hmm. uh, ironwork and forging, welding and forging, um, uh, casting and technology. And mm -hmm. so I've, I've really settled in there in the, um, in the, in the welding studio, welding and forging and have really learned a lot, but have been just ecstatic. I love it. I'm having a great time. So that's what <laughs> I So have you created some pieces? I have, don't know if you can see them, but I have pictures. Let's see if you can see the pictures. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I've, I've created quite a few actually I'm working on. So I actually, when I was writing the book, I found myself doing, a, especially on difficult chapters, I'd be like writing in my sleep for maybe a month. And then one day I'd wake up and know it was time to write. Well, I've been doing the same thing with the welding pieces and it's hysterical, but it's very cool. It's actually a lot of fun. This is a piece I'm working on right now. I don't know if you can see it. Can you see that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Wow. Shows but let me show you what I've done. Mm -hmm. I do have... Um, are these out? These are for outdoor sculptures? Or does These it are all about um, maybe... Uh, no, they're so far they're for inside. I'm inside. growing up and they're all, they're all small. They're under, you know, they're in the range of about a foot by a foot. Oh. Uh -huh. here so I've done some tables but I'm not going to show you those I'm going to show you so that's oh that's one <laughs> this is another these are complicated wow. intricate yes intricate this is I made this um let's see I made that rose black rose <gasps> for my granddaughter who's that's her online persona uh this is another one this is one of my favorites <laughs> oh wow um that's just one view of it i've made my son has gotten into jewelry so i made that jewelry tree for him that's the first one there's <laughs> another one i made later um this is the other one i made for him <laughs> nice. uh, this is a coat hat rack i don't know if you can see it it's not it's on a chair it's not hanging uh -huh. up yet. Oh, that i made for my daughter-in-law um <laughs> this is a belt rack that's one version of it that I made for my granddaughter's boyfriend. Here's some belts on it so you can get a better idea. <laughs> so it's um, we have practical yeah. stuff. Oh, and this is, this is, well, that's not the final piece. Oh, this is a piece that I made. Oh. From some scraps I really liked. Uh -huh. um, this is a bracelet I made for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, that's a, this is a better view of that. Wow. Beautiful. And then this is a this is a piece that I made. I don't know if you can see it, but it's a dove oh. and a fist, a sea oh, to yes. swim in, That's and lightning complex. rods to represent tension. And I'm doing the first piece I showed you is now the bottom or the beginning of another. I'm doing a series of these. Um, so that's going to be here's another one of that. So you can. Are any of these in your book? No, most of these I've been doing since the book was done, since actually. Done. I've been editing the book, but okay. yeah. the book stops really when I left city council. Okay. Um, so that's, yeah, I have some others, but who knows where they are. So before we close, which unfortunately has to be soon, uh, we always <laughs> like to ask our guests, what, what, how do you think about your own aging? My own talk? aging? I really am enjoying my aging. I feel like um, 
honestly, I, as the more I learn or am able to put myself, my, my life experience into some context, Mm -hmm. I actually feel like I grow younger. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that doesn't mean to say I'm not, having said that, I have to acknowledge that I am more tired every day. (laughs) I used to be able to go 24 seven. I can't do that. But accepting the limitations, I'm actually enjoying the moments much more than ever. And um, so I really have appreciated it. My mother had a difficult time when she aged and she always, you know, especially, I mean, she lived to be almost 97 and the last 10 or 15 years of her life, she was really in a lot of pain. So I, I have been very, and that was all structural for her body. And for me, I've had some similar issues. So I've spent a lot of time, I do a lot of Pilates, but I've also spent a lot of time with different um, physical therapists and doctors just to try and make sure that I'm not negatively impacted by the same things. And I've, mm-hmm. and I had a lot of difficulty when I was writing and sitting a lot, but actually have found how to, I've found some really good practitioners who've really taught me how to address that and um, found somebody who helped me actually get rid of most of my pain by just a few very simple exercises. Was this physical um, therapist? Yeah, it was amazing. Shirley, Ryan, Ability, oh, Lab. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, they were amazing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I love actually this stage of my life and, um, and embrace it. I totally embrace it. I think it's embraceable. <laughs> I know people have difficulties, but like I said before, I, I really do believe that there's a solution to every problem. It's just a question of getting there. And it doesn't mean you go back. So, and this was a really important lesson. Let me just say this. The last physical therapist I saw who really helped me, I mean, he basically taught me how to deal with the pain in a way that really worked. And what he said to me was, I can't do anything about the structure of your body. It is what it is, but I can help you avoid the pain that's a consequence of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important. We can't go back or redo something, but we can find ways in which to ameliorate the impacts in order to be able to have a much better quality of life. And if we search for that and don't get caught on the other, I think we might have a better path to follow. That's wow. beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Helen. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for doing the podcast. I think it's great. (laughs) And and listeners, viewers, at the beginning of the podcast, we urged you to join Aging Reimagined Circle, our our sustaining membership fund. And Aging Reimagined Circle hosts our monthly interactive programs. And we invite you to engage with us in these probing discussions and lend your voice to these important conversations about women aging. Visit womenover70.com to join. Thank you again, Helen. Thanks. This is great. And reimagined.